Okay, reading from Jude, verses 8 through 10. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Thus says the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Let's pray together. God, as we do every week, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerns our thoughts, our intent, our intents, Lord. And so, Lord, we just invite you to do that in us through your word today. God, as we consider the nature and the character of false teachers, Lord, we ask that today you would let your word be illuminated to us in a way that protects us from the deceptions of such people, Lord. God, we pray as we consider them that we would not be boastful or arrogant, Lord, but you would humble us, God, so that we can stay, God, with the, with the heart of the gospel and not uh, be caught in, up in false teaching ourselves, either in the believing of it or in the proclamation of it, Lord. But God, draw us, draw us by your word to your gospel. Lord, I pray especially for myself in sharing this word that you would cause me to have a heart of tremendous humility, Lord, before this people. God, that you would correct my faults and that you would cause me to be accurate as to the intent and the meaning of your word, Lord. I pray that you would just, Lord, be here with me and that you would overshadow me and speak through me, Lord. God, I pray for every ear that will hear, every heart that will hear this morning, Lord, that you would bless your word to multiply and grow and strengthen the hearers, Lord. Ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, we began a series a couple of weeks ago on this tiny little epistle, this this letter uh, by Jude. Um, it is one chapter, it's 25 verses, really, it's not the shortest book in the Bible, but it is definitely among the shortest. Um, we mentioned a couple weeks ago that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I say half-brother because Joseph and Mary were Jude's parents, but but Mary and God were Jesus' parents. So, though he didn't at first... Um, after Christ's resurrection, Jude believed in Jesus fully as Lord. Um, in fact, in the introduction, he identifies himself as a servant or the servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything about his family connection. He just says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, he also tells us in the first few verses, as we mentioned this last time, that his original intent in writing to the churches was to share with them something that would be encouraging or instructive about salvation, but there's a crisis that has arisen, and that crisis has shifted Jude's focus. 
Um, and now what he's doing is he is warning his readers about the venom of false teachers, false prophets, false believers. And he, and he gives them this exhortation in verse 3 of his book. He says, Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the word contend, what he's asking us to do, he's asking us to accurately define the gospel both within the church and to the watching surrounding culture. And, he, and, and contend also means not just to define it, but to defend it against all attacks, against every kind of alteration that people would make to the gospel. And, and this is an important uh, this is an important instruction for us. Why? Because if we can't define the true gospel, then we will be absolutely powerless to defend it. It's hard to, def- to defend something that you can't even define. You can't defend marriage if you don't know what a true marriage is. You can't defend you know, the, the family if you don't know what a family is. So if we don't define to, in order to be able to defend the gospel, we, like Jude's readers, are going to be deceived either by our own vain imaginations or by those who are preaching a different gospel. So Jude takes great care to describe for us and for his original readers the character and the activity of the deceivers who he says have crept into the church. And this is what he calls them. He says they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, ungodly, we talked about this as well. It means that they resist everything that God loves, everything that God desires. In his letter, John calls this, uh, uh, not Jude, but John, the Apostle John, calls this ungodliness, this anti-godliness, he actually calls it the spirit of antichrist. Now, that might raise a red flag with you, but I want you to understand what John is saying in his letter. John is saying that the antichrist isn't just a scary world leader who shows up in the last days. What he's saying is that antichrist is a spirit that is now present right now in this age and is working against the gospel. And this is what Jude's readers were facing. And, and let me let you in on a little secret. We're still facing it today. The spirit of Antichrist is still working within the church and within the culture to resist everything godly, to resist everything that the gospel proclaims. There's a resistance from the spirit of Antichrist. Over the centuries, this Antichrist has taken the form of popes and heretics and false prophets and faith healers and abusive pastors and greedy televangelists. It's everywhere. But Jude says that we can know that there's a, 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 a spirit of Antichrist at work because they twist and they distort the message of God's free forgiveness of sin and they turn it into a license to gratify their senses and to indulge their appetites. Now, he uses the word sensuality here, that they turn the grace of, of our Lord Jesus into sensuality. Now, you and I might think, because of our culture, that sensuality simply means sexuality. There's a sexual element to this, and it can mean that. But what it literally means, when we use the word sensuality, is that it means this obsession with gratifying our senses, either through sex or greed or entertainment or the praise of men or any other self-pleasing pursuit. That's what sensuality means. And how many times in your life, 
in my life have we seen, have we watched as prominent Christian leaders have gone down in flames in pursuit of sex or in pursuit of money, in pursuit of influence, because they perverted the message of God's grace through Jesus into some sort of self-absorbed sensuality. Now Jude bluntly states in his opening verses that people like this are under God's condemnation. They are awaiting a fiery judgment similar to that that the rebellious children of Israel experienced when they fell dead in the desert rebelling against God. He's saying that similar to the fallen angels who are chained in darkness are waiting for. It says it's similar to what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. And Jude, through the, through the bulk of his letter, is warning us not to align with people like this. Would you say that that's good advice? And so then he begins to describe it in our text today. He says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, he's given us four symptoms, four indicators that you can look at and say, this is probably a false teacher, a false prophet, a false believer. And we see this these four distinct ways. The first one, he says, is that false teachers rely on their dreams. What he's saying is that they value subjective experiences that they claim are from God, while ignoring the revelation of God's Word, the clear revelation of God's Word, they opt instead and value instead subjective experiences. They, they take prophetic words and dreams and visions and they regard them as having the highest authority instead of being... And, and they call those things foundational to what they believe. Now listen to me. I, I, I want to be real clear here. God may speak to our hearts about specific situations at times. I've experienced that. Many of you have experienced that, where God gave clear direction. Um, And I've met people who have seemed to be legitimately led in some important direction through a dream they had or a vision that they experienced. But listen to me and listen carefully. I've I've been a believer for over 30 years, and I have truckloads, literally truckloads of anecdotes, many, many more anecdotes of people who have been deceived, who've been abused, who've been misled, who've been disillusioned by words, by visions, by dreams, than I do about people who through such things were drawn closer to Christ. Now, I'm not making a, um, a blanket statement about what I believe or don't believe about spiritual gifts. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about people who take those sorts of subjective things and give them the highest authority. Those types of things are always subjective. I mean that they're not objective. What I'm saying is that they are subjective because when we experience a dream, a word, a vision, those things are defined, the meaning of them, the, the nature of them, the veracity of them is defined by us and not by a consistent standard. But what is it that's always inspired? What is it that's always inerrant? What is it that's always infallible? What is it that's always authoritative? What is it that's always sufficient? The Scriptures. Always. Y'all with me today? It's always right. 
It's not subject. The scriptures are not subject to anybody's subjective feeling. It's not uh, subject to anybody's private teaching. It's not subject to anybody's unique word or dream or vision. The word of God always means what it means and it's always right. Always. But this isn't where they end. This is not the, the last indicator of a false teacher. It also says that they defile the flesh. And this refers to people who relying on their vain dreams become sexually immoral. And it's stunning. Now that might seem like a huge leap that somebody preaches a false gospel and becomes sexually immoral. But, but think with me how often this has been the case with false teachers. Think about it. You've seen it in the news. Ravi Zacharias, Carl Lentz, Jim Baker, Todd Bentley, Jimmy Swaggart, Ted Haggard, Tully and DeVitchi, and Jerry Falwell Jr. All of these guys, famous, influential Christian leaders, and all of them, in one way or another, shaky on the gospel. And all of them, every single one I just listed, bit the dust with the millstone of gross sexual sin hanging around their necks. False gospel led, in their case, to a sexually immoral life. And as I said, sensuality doesn't have to involve sex. Some men will trade the beauty of a woman for a multi-million dollar luxury jet. They'll, they'll get their, their, their uh, supporters to raise 65, 100 million dollars so they can have a luxury jet like Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis have all done. And they have, they have not defiled their, their, to the best of my knowledge, they haven't defiled their flesh with sexual sin, but they have with the ugliest kind of greed. And Paul shows us the real possibility of this. He tells us in 1 Timothy, he says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Not if we have food, clothing, and a luxury jet. Not food, clothing, and a, you know, hundred acre property with a mansion he says if we have these things we'll be content now listen listen to his warning paul's warning he said but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation not some of those who desire to be rich those who make their desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare a trap and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction they defile their flesh Now listen, some of you I can just sense the nervousness. I do not mean to be cruel or self-righteous by naming the names of these people. My intent, like Jude, is to warn you. And I'm warning you that if someone that you're listening to, someone that you're subscribing to their podcast, will not crucify by the power of the Spirit their sexual passions or their material greed, they do not have the gospel right. And I want you to hear that. And I want you to know it. And I want you to to let it be a red flag to you. Don't listen to them. But Jude isn't done. Number three. He says they not only rely on dreams and, and defile their flesh, he says they reject authority. We've already talked about how these people reject the Bible's authority. But beyond this, they also refuse to be under authority themselves. To the church. They answer to nobody, and yet they expect all others to answer to them. One of the most amazing incidents, the most amazing scenes portrayed to us in the Bible, in the New Testament, was in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Peter 
is being dressed down. He's being publicly corrected by the Apostle Paul. Now think about that. The Apostle Peter was called a rock by Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Peter was given the tremendous privilege of preaching the first gospel message on the day of Pentecost with the result that 3,000 people became born again. If anybody should have been untouchable, it was the, it was the Apostle Peter. And yet, we see through Paul's courageous confrontation and correction of him that not even the Apostle Peter was above the scrutiny or even the rebuke of other believers. Y'all following this? And yet false teachers all over America, all over the world, call themselves bishop and apostle, and they hide their sin behind a title, and they virtually dare anyone to challenge them. Now listen, I want to put my money where my mouth is and practice what I preach. In our church, I am not an unchecked authority. I am subject to Pastor Paul, Pastor David, and others. I have Daryl Edwards in my life who can say anything he wants at any time and has. Sometimes annoyingly so. But I love him for it. I'm on the phone all the time with Tom Hall who asks me very tough questions. Tom Hall is one of the few people in this world who's made me cry several times. (laughs) And that's how it should be. That's how it should be, folks. I need to be under authority, and you have the right to expect that I'm under authority before I ever exercise authority. And yet Jude is still not done. He says, they rely on their dreams, they defile their flesh, they reject authority. And then this mysterious phrase that kind of took me in a weird direction when I began to study it in the Scripture It says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, if you read the context, and we're going to go over it here in a second, of what he's saying, he's probably not speaking of blaspheming God, interestingly enough. And it's more likely, brace yourself for this, but it's more likely a reference to flippantly or, you know, arrogantly addressing fallen angels, fallen spirits, devils, and demons. Now, listen, he's not implying that fallen angels are in some way holy like God, is that they're glorious, that they have the same kind of glory as God. What does he mean by glorious ones? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is a glory of spiritual things and there's a glory of fleshly things. And so he's saying that there is, there's a different kind of, of, you know, essence to spiritual beings. He's not calling them glorious necessarily in a positive sense, but he is saying that they are tremendously different he's saying that they that these unclean spirits these evil spirits these devils are real that they're powerful and listen to me carefully they are not subject to us now i I can sense you i see you guys pulling out your yellow penalty flags to throw what do you mean they're not subject to us listen we have authority over evil spirits do you agree with that but we do not have authority over any evil spirits in and of ourselves. We have authority over evil spirits because Christ has granted us that. So what I'm saying is we have authority over evil spirits only through Christ, and we should never forget that. If you want to go out and tell the devil 
you know, how it's going to be and, you know, uh, teach him a lesson that he is going to teach you one real quick. I have talked to many people who are involved in credible stories of dealing with demonic spirits in, in, in ministry. And they're, they're never say, well, I walked in, kicked in the door and bound them and threw them out. No, no, no. They always say the, the initial, the initial response is to make their skin crawl. Because you're in the presence of something that is a whole lot different than you. That has a whole different perspective in a spiritual realm that you do not visibly exist in right now. They're different. They're strong. And we should never ever forget that. And this is how Jude illustrates this point. This is how we know that he's, when he says blaspheme the glorious ones, that he's talking about fallen angels. Because he says, watch, he says that when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil about the body of Joseph, he was, uh, of Moses. He was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not watch, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this account that we just read, this thing about Michael and, uh, and the devil and Moses' body, this account is found nowhere else in the Bible. It may come from a lost section of a work called the Testament of Moses, but we're not even sure about that. We have no idea where this comes from. But it was obviously a reference that in Jude's day, 2,000 years ago, the readers, especially his Jewish readers, probably would have easily understood. It's kind of like if I make a reference to the TV show The Office. 2,000 years ago, they may not know what the heck I'm talking about, but you guys, most of you would get that. It shouldn't bother us that this account isn't in the Bible, though, because Paul, uh, sometimes in... Uh, places like you know Titus and First Corinthians, he he quotes um, pagan philosophers to make a point in his writings because he knew that his audience would understand the reference. But Paul and Jude aren't saying when they do this that pagan philosophers and obscure Jewish texts are inspired. They're just using them as a bridge of understanding to make a relevant point. And that's what Jude is doing here. So don't get too hung up on that. But what I want you to not miss is the larger point. Don't stumble on the larger point of this. Michael, God's mighty archangel, was in a dispute with the devil. And if anyone, I hope you would agree with this, if anyone besides God is a match for Satan, surely it would be Michael. Is that fair enough to assume? Surely it would be Michael. But in this in the snapshot that Jude gives us, we don't see Michael drawing his sword. We don't even see him binding or rebuking the devil. Instead, he entrusts the dealing with the devil entirely to God. He says, he, he, he doesn't say, now I'm, I'm going to do a so-called Jericho march around you devil and I'm going to bind you and cast you out. He doesn't do any of that. He looks at him. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. He even says to the devil, devil, I am not your judge, but I know who is. And I am putting you under his authority. Again, forgive me again, but I got to point this out. So many of you saw the video. Paula White, a notorious false teacher. She prayed that there would be angels dispatched from she more commanded that there be angels dispatched from Africa and South America to help Trump win the election lawsuits. While all the while pounding on her pulpit and claiming, God said it is done. God said it is done. May I point out the obvious? It wasn't done. The election lawsuits were overturned. Donald Trump today is not the president. 
how, how is it not blasphemy to arbitrarily decree what God has or what God says is done? How is that not blasphemy? Has God ever appointed us to be his authorized spokesman? Has God appointed Paula White to be that? Has God given any of us the authority to dispatch angels? And if you believe he has, I'm fine with that, but I'm requiring that you show me a chapter and a verse. What we do have is Hebrews telling us the function of angels. In chapter 1 it says, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit, who are to inherit salvation? Who's doing the sending out? If you read the context, it's God doing the sending out. The book of Acts tells us that there was a time when Paul was seeing many amazing miracles performed through his hands. And that at this time, there were some traveling Jewish exorcists. And watching Paul's ministry and the success that it seemed to have, they began to co-opt some of his methods for casting out demons. And, and they did this, obviously, because they were proving so effective. His methods were proving to be so effective. And so they would go into a place where somebody was being tormented by evil spirits, and they would say, I command you, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, to come out of him. Now, in particular, there were these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. What a terrible name. Seven sons of Sceva, and they tried this, but to their surprise in this particular instance that the book of Acts tells us about, the demon responded to them. He spoke back, and he said, wait, hold on, excuse me, guys. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who the heck are you? And then the Bible tells us that that the man, empowered by these demons, grabbed all seven of those guys, beat the living daylights out of them, stripped them naked, and sent them scurrying for the door. See, what was the problem in that instance? They did what many of us who've been heavily influenced by the charismatic movement have done. They thought that they could use the words without having the relationship that gives the words credibility. They were attributing to themselves, in the use of the words, power that belonged to Jesus Christ alone. And when we get this wrong, folks, we invest way too much authority in ourselves and not enough in Jesus. Usually people bind and rebuke and make decrees against the devil in order to do one of two things, either to alleviate personal suffering or to bring about a desired result in the earth. But I want you to see that when Jesus was facing the greatest trial of his life, John chapter 12, he looks to heaven in prayer. He acknowledges that his hour has come and he says this, watch this, Father, glorify your name. He doesn't say, God, get me out of this mess. He says, God, glorify your name. See, we use these rebukes and these bindings and these, all these things, these methods to 
bring about this desired result or alleviate suffering. But the, but the Bible teaches us that suffering is one of God's chosen mechanisms to conform us to the image of Christ. We are from suffering, we're revi- refined from raw material into heavenly gold. God, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but He shouts to us in our pains. It is His megaphone, Lewis says, to rouse a deaf world. If all my rebukes against an unseen enemy in my suffering were effective, let me ask you this blunt question. Do you think I would ever change? Nope. I would become so slothful in my Christian life, in the process of my sanctification, and so would you. Because we're most in danger when we're most comfortable. When does a lion come out of the weeds and kill some antelope? When they're minding their own business, drinking from a stream, thinking all is right with the world, that's when the lion shows up. And the Bible says that your enemy is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so God allows us to go through tough times because tough times, suffering, does this amazing thing. It keeps all of my attention focused on Jesus. Because I know if I'm not crying out to Him, I'm going to get devoured. So God uses those things. And if, and if all it takes is a simple rebuke of the devil, why didn't Joseph... Why didn't Job, why didn't David, why didn't Paul or even Jesus rebuke the devil to escape suffering? What about our circumstances? If I could change my circumstances by just rebuking the devil, could I ever see God's glory in my life in the same way? And I would argue that no, you could not. That's why the Bible promises this beautiful passage. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things... What things? Let me hear you louder. What things? All things work together for good. For those who are, call, for those who are called according to His purpose, all things are working together for good. See, the beauty of the gospel is that God can bring about His glory in our lives through and not in spite of our worst circumstances. His glory shines when things aren't shiny. Amen? Has anybody in this place experienced that? Have you seen God's glory seen in the worst of your days, in the worst of your circumstances? Anybody? Now this is not to say, if you guys think I'm getting kind of wussy on the... uh, on the demonic realm, this is not to say that when the demonic realm, which is very real, is oppressing and harassing people that we can't stand up to it. That is not what I'm saying. On the contrary, Jesus has granted us power. He said in Luke to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And we should want to and we should long to and we should pray to see people made free. But the point is that any and all power that we have over demonic works is by God's sovereign decree. And it's never on the basis of my decree. And when we forget this, Jude is saying that we literally run the risk of careless blasphemy. What a charge that is. 
Listen to this. He says, but these people, the, the false teachers are referring to, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So he has this, contra- this uh, not contradiction, but this tension between things they do understand or do not understand and things they do understand. And Jesus once told his opponents that the reason that they were in error was because they didn't understand either the Scriptures or the power of God. And we see this in Jude's words. We see the exact same principle in Jude's words. The people he refers to are falling into deep error because they rejected both the authority of the, of the Bible and the church and they refused to submit their lives to be governed by either one. And as a result, they don't understand the glorious functioning of God's power in the, live, in the lives of the redeemed. And so they substitute reality for fairy tales, fairy tales that are concocted in their own vain imaginations. And they imagine that power finds its source in themselves rather than in the living, gloriously holy God. And this is what Jude means when he says they blaspheme all they do not understand. They've reduced God and and workings in the spiritual realm to formulas to mantras to chants that they can say magic words that they can say and they, and by doing so they cheapen the gospel that costs Jesus everything in order to achieve worldly gain sensual gratification and earthly power see but the true gospel this is the whole point of everything I'm saying to you. it's not to beat up any false teachers it's not to you know uh, give people a hard time about some you know, method they use in prayer. But the true gospel, what I want you to see, is far more beautiful than any twisted perversion of it could ever be. The gospel is simply proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles is so much better. In the gospel, there is unspeakable beauty, even in the face of tremendous earthly loss. In the gospel, there is joy bursting forth in the midst of the deepest kinds of suffering. In the gospel, there is a sure, unshakable hope for a glorious future, even if we have to endure a dark and painful present. And because... These folks have perverted and abandoned the true gospel. Jude says that they've been reduced to being destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And what he means is that they live by nothing more than sensual instinct. Now, I like to use my little dog Luther as a sermon illustration often. I love Luther. It brings me great joy. But when my little dog Luther comes in back into the house after doing his business, He gets a little treat. He loves his little treat. He'll sit there ever so patiently, cutest little look on his face, and just wait for me to respond and give him a milk bone. Now, he doesn't make sure, he doesn't say, oh, I need to go talk to Mark, make sure I get my treat because of the great nutritional value of that treat. And he never never says, you know, I've probably had way too many calories today. I think I'm going to forego the treat. Never does that. He's been trained to wait for his treat. Why? Because it tastes good. To him, at least. Not to me. I've never tried one. But to him, it tastes good, and he likes it. He likes to come in because he knows he's going to get a treat. 
You know what this is? This is instinct. I've trained him to do that. There's a, there's a, a something that feels good to his senses when he comes in and I give him the treat. In a sense, though, if you're honest with yourself, it's slavery. I have modified Luther's behavior to do this thing. His desire rules him. He has to have a treat in order to be happy when he comes in. And when I forget to give him that treat, he's going to feel awful ripped off. Maybe a little ticked off if he doesn't get one. And many of us treat God exactly like this. God, I did something good. Where's my treat? Where's my treat? Where's the, where's the thing that's going to make my senses feel good? Where's my sensual pleasure, God, that is going to help me, make me feel affirmed? We treat God like this because we're enslaved to the devil's treats. And we're living by our instincts. Our senses are calling the shots. And we are not interested in a gospel that Jesus proclaimed that says this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cost of finding life, Jesus says, is losing life. To let go of all the devil's treats waiting there by the back door so that we can have something of real, true value. And this is among the reasons that Jude told us in the very first few verses that these people were designated for condemnation long ago. It's because they'll never, they'll never die to their sensual desire in order so that they may come to true life in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we continue our series, determine, I beg you, I plead with you to determine that you will know what the true gospel really is, what it really means, and that you will accept no substitutes. I'm going to leave you with with Paul's words to the 1 Corinthians and then another admonition from him from Galatians. But he said in 1 Corinthians, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's defining the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you're going to know what the true gospel is, you want to know that Jesus died not so you can only be forgiven, but so that you could be made completely new. You're not a better version of your old self. You are a brand new self. And you want to know, and you want to discover that Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is worth giving up everything else you have so that you can have Him. And you want to know that in the words of Jonathan Edwards that you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. And you want to know that Jesus holds out great promise for us, not only in this life, but also in the one to come. And I ask you, have you embraced this gospel? Have you embraced this gospel? And if not, can I please invite you to do that today? If you're a guest here, we have several guests here today. We're not a church that's going to play some weepy music and make you raise your hand with every head bowed and every eye closed, come down and repeat a prayer after me. That, that's just a ceremony. 
But if you want to embrace this gospel, I am pleading with you right now, bow your head and say, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I believe. I believe you're enough for me, Jesus. I believe you died for me, Jesus. I believe that you washed away my sins by your death, Jesus. I believe you're coming back for me, Jesus. Simply cry out to him and he will save you. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me ask you, have you looked to another gospel? Maybe some of the things I said today showed you that you'd been looking at a cheap knockoff of the most glorious message ever proclaimed. It's kind of like buying a Gucci bag in Times Square and finding out it was made in Hong Kong or something. Galatians says this, my final word to you, Galatians 1 verse 6. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He's saying the same thing Jude is. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now imagine the absurdity of what he's saying. Paul is saying that if an angel fluttered down from heaven right now in all of our sight, in all of his glory, and he began to preach to you what he claimed to be a message from God, but it was different than this, He's saying, let that angel fall under a curse. Think about the power of that statement about how important it is to get the gospel right. He says it again, as we have said before, verse 9, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Jude said long ago they were designated for this condemnation. So I want to call this morning all true believers to call out, to appeal to, to trust in, to believe in again the gospel. Not so you can be saved again. God has saved you once and for all, but so that you can reaffirm, I am following the true message. I am following the message of Jesus Christ. That he, he lived, He died, He was buried, He was raised, He ascended to the Father, and even now He's making intercession for me. That is the gospel. It has nothing to do with what you do, your morality, your thinking, your theology, nothing. It has to, to do with you trusting that Jesus is enough. And I am here to proclaim to you by the Spirit of God today, Jesus is enough. Would you stand with me? We are going to, as a, one, as a weekly reminder of our trust in the gospel of Jesus' death, of his cleansing power, of his resurrection, of his ascension, of his reign, we are going to come to the table and receive the elements of bread and the cup that remind us that a very real Jesus was broken for us, that his blood was shed, and this was all for us so that we could be made one with him. In spite of our suffering, in spite of our negative circumstances, so that we could belong to Jesus, he died paid the penalty for all of our sin after having lived a perfect life for us. And in that moment, he made an exchange. Taking on our sin, he granted to those who would believe all of his righteousness.
And we celebrate that every week with a feast. A feast where we symbolically feed upon Christ and enjoy His presence and remember what He has done. Paul explains what we're commemorating here when he says these words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take his body. Lord, as we consume a symbol of your broken body, it reminds us that you were broken because we already were broken. And that, Lord, it is only through your brokenness that we are made whole. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that makes us whiter than snow. We thank you that as you said in John 9, your body is true food and your blood is true drink. And you invited us to consume you, to feast on you, to, to take you into ourselves. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, extend your hands in a receiving position. And I would just want to pronounce this benediction over you as we pursue the true gospel. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor, your, your labor rather, is not in vain. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.